Few things as tiny hold such a sway over nature as bees. Their 130 million years existence on this planet has in part made it what it is today. And yet, these ancient insects' survival has of late been made uneasy to say the least. Today, we'll take a look at all things related to bees, from their history with humans to their migratory folklore, as well as beekeeping, life cycles, colony roles, and beeswax. This episode has been written and researched by Erin Boblick. I'm your host, Judy Clinton Doolin for Southern Appalachian Wild. Let's learn about bees. The western honeybee, Apis mellifera, is a Eurasian immigrant brought to the United States in the late 17th century by early European settlers. There are a total of only eight surviving species of honeybees though as many as 11 have existed historically, with 43 recognized subspecies representing a small portion of all over 20,000 known species of bees. The honeybee egg is laid by the queen in a single wax cell in the hive comb. She can choose whether or not to fertilize the egg depending on what the colony requires. Drone bees emerge as unfertilized eggs, while female bees, workers, and queens come from fertilized eggs. The larva grows within the sealed cell, and as it emerges from its tiny home, it is greeted by a worker, often called a nurse bee. This nurse bee will feed the larva nutrient-rich royal jelly. This jelly is secreted from the glands in the worker's hypopharynx and is given to all larvae regardless of sex or caste. Should it be determined a particular larva will grow into a queen, it is fed larger amounts of royal jelly, thus triggering the development of queen morphology, specifically ovaries, which are needed to lay eggs. The larvae are eventually fed nectar and after several moltings, spin a cocoon within their individual cells and pupate. It takes worker bees 21 days to develop, sometimes reaching as many as 60,000 within a particular colony. It is the most complex role of any bee in a colony. The worker's role begins, as stated earlier, by feeding the larvae while simultaneously maintaining the general upkeep of the hive and building additional cells once the gland producing the rolled jelly has atrophied. They also sometimes, they also have something called hive logistics manager as well, communicating information to other bees through dancing, known as the waggle dance and tremble dance, concerning honey production, pollen receiving, foraging, and defense. 
Speaking of defense, many of us know the feel of a bee sting. Some of us react more severely than others. When a hive is threatened, the workers emit a pheromone that triggers the attack response and also can cause with the other bees an attack swarm. The stinger of the worker may have evolved in response to predation by vertebrates. The barbed stinger only separates from and kills the worker when it pierces fleshy tissue. It has its own musculature and ganglion, making it capable of continuing to emit the alarm pheromone as well as deliver venom after it is detached. The venom in the stinger is known as apotoxin. The most abundant component within the apotoxin is melitin. Drone bees develop from unfertilized eggs in about 24 days during the summer and autumn months and can number as many as 500 in a colony. They do not have stingers and thus do not defend the hive. The drone's sole purpose is to mate with the queen, dying after the act, and have larger eyes in which to locate her during the mating flights. Come winter, drones are expelled from the hive, yes, kicked out, since the mating season is over, and the focus of the colony shifts from food and colony production to conservation. Beekeeping is one of the oldest practices in human history. Apiculture, the domestication of bees, in Egypt dates back to 4,500 years. Beekeeping pottery was found in North Africa dating back to 9,000 years, and images depicting humans gathering honey from wild bees in Spain was found dating back to 10,000 years. They were seen as messengers between the worlds of the living and the dead by Greek, Roman, and Celtic societies. The Irish goddess Bridget had an apple orchard in the other world where rivers ran with mead. Romans believed Jupiter gave bees their sting in order to defend their honey. Juno, Jupiter's wife, thought that it was a very special gift indeed and that they should repay Jupiter. That's why they die whenever they sting a human. To say we're fascinated with honey and its humble makers forever would not be an understatement. At its core, the practice of beekeeping hasn't changed much at all over time, save for a few introductions of better equipment, larger hive colonies, and greater controlled areas for bees to travel. And travel they do as does the folklore associated with honeybees. Much of Appalachian honeybee and beekeeping folklore has its roots in England and the other Celtic nations. A direct storytelling link is not easily missed. In an interview with author and folklorist Mark Norman on the History and Folklore podcast from July 7, 2020, Mark discusses his book, Telling the Bees and Other Customs, The Folklore of Rural Crafts. He states, my interests are predominantly UK-based folklore because that's the area that I worked in most for my own research. 
But I wanted to take it further than that because so much of the history and so much of the superstition that lies behind these kinds of crafts isn't necessarily based in one country. The practice of telling the bees, which is the title of his book, is one such superstition. Here in Appalachia, when a beekeeper or member of the beekeeper's family dies, it is the responsibility of the family owning the hive to let the bees know the news. A black strip of cloth is sometimes placed on the hive during the family's mourning as well. People interviewed for this episode of Southern Appalachian Wild said they were familiar with the practice of telling the bees. Members of their family having either told them about it or had actually done it themselves, but they weren't for certain as to why it was done, nor had they ever known anyone that did know. For that, we need to look to the past. The history of telling the bees in the UK differs only slightly from its descendant practice in Appalachia, but it is much deeper and reverent uh, of a practice. The bees are always told of the death in the family, much like here, but they're also kept abreast of any and all major family events like births, weddings, holidays, moves, and other things. In her article from May 4th, 2019, Why Bees Are Considered Such Good Luck in Folklore, folklore researcher, author, and host of the fabulous Folklore pad podcast, um, I.C. Sedgwick gives the reason as this, bees are incredibly social little creatures and they are quite the little gossips. And much like the small town gossips, they also easily are offended. Should the bees catch wind of their owner's good or bad fortune whilst visiting a neighboring farm or field, they would most certainly not be happy to hear the news secondhand. The worry here is that they will become so cross with their keeper, they'll stop producing honey or worse, will leave the hive for good. A good beekeeper must always keep a calm tone while speaking to their bees, must never swear, and should keep their happy with an occasional song, keep them happy with an occasional song. In the Frank C. Brown collection of North Carolina folklore, Popular Beliefs and Superstitions from North Carolina from 1964, we find additional references to this practice. He states, when a member of the family dies, the beehives must be draped in a black cloth to make sure they don't leave. If you fail to move your bees when a family member dies, all of the bees will die as well. And from the article Legends and Lore of Bees by Patty Wigington from August 22nd, 2019, in some areas of New England and Appalachia, it is believed that once someone died, it was very important for the family to go tell the bees of the death. Whoever kept the bees for the family would be, have to be sure to give the bees the news so that they could spread it around it. The 19th century American poet John Greenleaf Whitaker has a poem titled Telling the Bees, 
written in 1894. The closing lines are as follows. Before them, under the garden wall, forward and back, went drearily singing the core girl small, draping each hive with a shred of black. Trembling, I listened, the summer sun had the chill of snow, for I knew she was telling the bees of one, gone on a journey we must all go. Then said to myself, my Mary weeps for the dead today, happily her blind old grandsire sleeps, and fret and the pain of his age away. These aforementioned mites are one of the greatest threats to beekeeping hives. In a 2016 report by the U.S. National Agriculture Statistics Service, Varroa mites were labeled as the primary colony stressor. The mites arrived in the U.S. in the 1980s and affect these at every stage of development by living and feeding on and transferring viruses to bees. Unfortunately, the predominant way to handle this problem is by using chemicals to kill the mites, a practice that some beekeepers are not too keen on for reasons we will discuss shortly. In an interview for Southern Appalachian Wild, beekeeper turned brewery owner Derek Askew of the Bearded Bee Brewing Company in Wendell, North Carolina, explained, explains ways one might handle a Verona infestation. An oxalic acid vaporizer is most commonly used wherein a tablet of oxalic acid is placed within a vaporizer box. The box is then placed within the brood box. The acid vapor fills the box, condenses, and recrystallizes on the bees. It's a low enough dose to, of acid to kill the mites without harming the bees, and this is done away and this is done away from the hive where the honey is collected. Another way to remove the mites is by breaking the brood cycle. Derek says, simply put, a beekeeper could cap the cells within the brood box, breaking both the life cycle of the mites and the bees, assuming then that the hive will repopulate with more mite-free larvae. And how does a beekeeper know if they have the mites? Derek has a very homegrown method for this. Take a jar full of bees and cover them with confectioner's sugar. The bees won't mind too much, but the mites will. The slick sugar causes the mites to lose their grip on the bees. One can then simply sift through the sugar in search of tiny black dots. The only problem, Derek says, is that now you've got 300 annoyed white bees circling around you. Chemicals are, unfortunately, an easy alternative to breaking the brood, but it's not without its own fallout, even if the acid vapor is seemingly harmless. Kentucky State Apiarist Tammy Horn Potter states in Gillespie's article, the cosmetics industry won't touch beeswax that has hives in the United States because of how many chemicals can be found inside. We continue to have to import wax from Africa for our cosmetics industry. 
This is a huge concern for commercial beekeepers and hobbyists alike. Whether it be mite treatments, pesticides, herbicides, or any number of chemicals found in runoff, the amount of industrial and personal outdoor chemical use is one of, if not the number one, perpetrator of bee die-off in the United States. What can we do to help our pretty little pollinating friends? If you're like Morgan Freeman, you can convert your 124-acre ranch into a pollinator sanctuary to help bolster bee populations. But most of us don't have 124 acres to spare. An article from Monrovia.com titled Ask an Expert, best pollinator plants for the garden gives an excellent list of plants you could grow at home that help pollinators of all kinds. It states, pollinator plants are flowering perennials, annuals, or shrubs that provide the nectar and pollen, pollen essential for the flourishing pollinator population. And a pollinator garden is an outdoor space that is filled with plants that provide a source of nectar and pollen to the local pollinator population. Pollinators, pollinator gardens can be large landscapes or small patio container gardens. If a space is filled mostly with pollinator friendly plants, it can be considered a pollinator garden. Pollinator gardens are made even better by providing a water source, nesting sites, and following other insect-friendly approaches. Some excellent pollinator-friendly plants include stonecrop, milkweed, coneflower, sunflower, lavender, honeybird, honey, hummingbird mint, goldenrod, cape fuchsia, yarrow, California lilac, and Bluebeard, just to name a few. You can always visit the Appalachian Beekeeping Collective at www.abchoney.org. Or if you happen to be in Wendell, North Carolina on the fourth Tuesday of the month, come by the Bearded Bee for Beers and Bees social, air, social hour, where lectures come to educate thirsty folks curious about beekeeping. This has been Judy Clinton Doolin for Southern Appalachian Wild. If you have any questions about this episode, please just uh, send me an email. If you're interested in working on this podcast, uh, also send me an email. My email is jnclinton3290 at gmail.com. Until the 20th of next month, get out into the woods.